Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Today, we get to talk with Alex McLeod, the Director of Healthcare Commercial Initiatives at InterSystems. She's someone who spent her entire career at one company and started with InterSystems nearly 21 years ago back in Germany as an intern and has worked her way up to her current role. She has a passion for machine learning and interoperability, and we're excited to share what she has to say. So let's get started. Welcome to Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. I am joined by Sharice Maynard and today's guest is Alex McLeod from InterSystems. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I would like to give you a minute to kind of introduce yourself and a little bit more about where you live in the health IT puzzle. Like what is your piece and how do you contribute to the healthcare ecosystem? Sure. So as you said, um, I work for InterSystems, which is a company that does a bunch of different things, but mainly we're focused on healthcare, healthcare IT. And um, my role is somewhat half technical, half commercial. So I sit on the product team, but I run our commercial initiatives for the healthcare business unit. So it's really kind of a bridge between sales and the field engineers and product. Well, how long have you been doing that? Well, so it depends a little bit on how you phrase the question, I guess, but I've been with InterSystems my entire career. So over 20 years, I started as an intern in college. So they keep me interested and busy and, you know, curious, which I guess is a good thing. This particular role, about five years. I can't imagine that you've had the same job for 20 years. Nope. Can you can you take us through your own journey within inner systems? Like, what is it that you have learned and how have you grown within the organization? 
Sure. So uh, I'll start chronologically and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what I've learned now. I've felt throughout. So again, I started as an intern actually in technical support. So, you know, I answered the phone when any of our customers had any issues that needed to be solved. And then after doing that for a couple of years, well, I interned for a couple of years and then they offered me a job in our German office or in the U.S. office because I'm actually from Germany. So I thought I'd come to the U.S. for two or three years and now it's been, you know, 17. But I did support for a couple of more years and then moved into sales engineering. So really kind of the technical end of sales. So I did the demos, the proof of concepts of our product suite. I was really the technical main point person for prospects and customers. And I did that for about eight years. And then we wanted to get the product off the ground internationally. So I moved you know, my focus to international and then ended up on the product team kind of handling both international and the U.S. for anything commercial around the product suite. Well, okay. So how different is it working for InterSystems in Germany versus working for InterSystems in Massachusetts? Not that different. Germans are different, obviously, just culturally. But the company, when I started, was really small. We had like 200 people. I knew about everyone. So it was kind of a family feel. We've since grown to about 1,700 people, although I do have to say it still feels like a family, but I can't tell you each and every single person anymore that works at the company. But, you know, I didn't feel like it was a huge shift work-wise to move. Personally, it was certainly, you know, exciting and adventurous and kind of a big move. But from the company, I felt like, you know, either one was my home. (laughs) Yeah. So when you started, did you have and was that on your sites? Like, did you know that that was in your future or did you just kind of, I don't know, up for the up for the adventure? It kind, well, I was always a big fan of the U.S. My family vacationed here like every other year. So I always had this dream of at some point coming here for, you know, at least temporarily, but it just kind of worked out. So, you know, when I started with Inner Systems, I didn't know that I was going to intern at the headquarters and that I was going to move. And it just, yeah, it happened. The American dream, it sounds so, you know, so mushy, but that's really what happened. Okay. So in your current position, yeah. you are in more of a leadership role. And as we think about your journey, I'm wondering, because I know this comes up for me and for other women in our field, when you move into leadership, you tend to have to sacrifice some of the creativity and that t- and the flexibility and that type of thing. Did you find that to be a challenge or, d- or do you still find yourself getting into creative mode with your current positions? It's funny, when I was younger, I always had this goal of, I want to be a manager, not really knowing what that meant, right? But that's kind of what you aspire to be. And then uh, I actually became a manager for the first time when I was in US sales engineering because we had grown so much, all of a sudden we had to build a hierarchy. And it was odd. I always liked mentoring people and teaching them, but I was used to kind of being the star of the show, you know, and uh, doing everything myself. Now, on the one hand, that kind of, I think, helped my team because they knew that I knew what I was teaching them. So they respected me for that kind of expertise I had, you know. But on the other hand, it was definitely a shift. It was like, okay, now I'm more in teaching mode and letting someone else take the stage. But I would say I still get enough opportunity to kind of dig in. And for me, the big thing is being in front of customers. So I don't need to do all the technical things hands-on myself anymore, but I still get plenty of customer exposure. And I feel like a mother to my team. <laughs> and I can say that even though some of them are older than me, but I, it's a joy to teach them. So it's, it's a shift, but you, know, you get used to it. And I feel like I have the best of both worlds still. 
So in your own words, what is it that you are an expert about? What is it that you typically teach? Well, it's several things. I think the sales engineering role actually for me was something that I wasn't aware existed when I came out of college, where you had a nice mixture of technical and salesy customer facing experience. And I feel like I can do that bridge pretty well. So I can go from really technical, knowing the products hands-on and teaching someone that or explaining the architecture to kind of being in an environment where you need to make it sound good and easy and, you know, and related to a business problem. And that's usually what I mentor on. Technically, there's plenty of people on my team now that are way better than me. You know? But I think just that bridge of, okay, how do you see the bigger picture that's something I focus on a lot with them. I think in terms of um, the sales engineer position for a company like InterSystems that's so global and you have all these different segments for yourself, the sales engineer part, do you find yourself having to learn new things or um, tailor the role of sales engineer to fit certain segments and that type of thing? Oh, constantly, yeah. And you know, I'm not in sales engineering anymore, although I would say the role still has the same facets and I deal with, you know, the sales engineering teams on a ba- daily basis. But yeah, constantly. So when I started with Inner Systems, actually, I did not focus on healthcare. I did, you know, in support, I just did all the verticals. And then when I moved to sales engineering, I started really specializing in healthcare, which is hilarious because I had no idea about healthcare IT. <laughs> so it kind of, you know, you learn by doing. But whether it's across verticals or just within healthcare, there's always something new, you know, new standards, new protocols, new initiatives and how organizations work together and what they want to do with their data, how they use it, who they share it with, you know, so it's a constant uh, learning experience. I get bored really easy. So that has kept me interested. I was about to say with the, you know, with the healthcare system, our ecosystem is so challenged by regulation and that type of thing. Did you find that shifting into the healthcare segment was challenging as far as you can't be as creative because you got all these, um, you know, guidance you have to follow and that type of thing. Was it an easy shift for you or, or was it difficult? I didn't find it difficult. It was, you know, you had to learn a couple of things. But I think each industry has their own kind of regulations. So that I didn't find that hard. Plus, healthcare made me really feel like, A, I'm doing something good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because vendors, I often thought, well, they're just driven by profit, you know, but this made me feel like it's doing something for the world. So that made me feel good. Plus, I feel like anyone can identify with what we do, because at the very least, even if you're not a doctor, you're a patient, right? So you can always think about your own situation and what you would want as a patient or as a caregiver for your elderly parents or for your children. And you could translate that into what we do. And I like that, you know, it feels very personal. I agree. I mean, one thing I really love about healthcare is that you really can't get bored. And like, even <laughs> you can be an expert in anything and still just be scratching the surface of what there is to know and to learn. And even with the regulations, which sounds so intimidating often, and the rule, I can't keep up with all the rules constantly. (laughs) I always need people, you know, informing me like our market intelligence group is really good at kind of keeping us up to date. But even that, I always try to take a step back and think about myself and what I would want to happen. And it's just logical thinking to me often, you know, like I remember I was asked uh, at some point online, I was looking up some something on a patient portal and they asked me if I would be willing to share my data with like the state. And can you believe it? I said no. <laughs> and I come from this background. So it 
that made me think, oh my God, there's actually a patient education component that we really need to invest in. Because if I say no, you can imagine 80% of other people not even being close to saying yes, you know, and that's something that would really benefit others. So yeah, just the, the personal angst that you get kind of makes you realize, oh, wow, you know, this is why this is so complicated. Well, sometimes I also think that it's good to have boundaries because you can be as creative, like considering the boundaries, it gives you a space in which to play, so to speak. Yeah. And so if you know where, you know, the ends are of like how right. far you can go, well, then you can kind of push it and be as creative within those boundaries as possible. Right. Do you find that that at all comes into play in your world? Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think of an example, but I think you worded it really well. You know, you just need to understand kind of the ground rules and then there's a lot you can do. And you always keep in mind that at the other end of the table, there's another human being sitting there, you know? So it's, you know, I always try to relate that back, but uh, you can certainly do a lot with, you know, with just the advances we've made in the 20 years I've seen this, it's incredible, you know? Well, so can we touch on that? So given from where you've been in the last 20 years, having spent your whole career at Inner Systems, what are some of the advances that you have been most impressed by or that have really like stuck with you? Yeah, and it's, um, you know, not even specific to Inner Systems, but to the industry, really. The way we're sharing data and what we can do with that data in terms of machine learning, AI, analytics, you know, and then maybe predicting, not necessarily predicting the future, but even just predicting what will become important, where we should focus our resources. I think it's incredible, you know, what we can do. Even if you look at this pandemic, obviously, you know, was certainly not easy on any of us and still isn't, I guess. And it's scary how you saw it moving, you know, through the countries to kind of take hold of the world. But even the way we analyze that data and what we could do with it and how we could pinpoint outbreaks, it's very impressive what we can do these days. That was one the, of the, you know, the speed of the vaccinations. I mean, it's crazy. Right. That's one of the things I was thinking about. Do you what do you think that we've learned in our field from this pandemic moving forward that we can do better or faster, so to speak? I actually think we were really good in terms of so the vaccinations, you know, the way we came out with them because we've had the technology for a long time, I guess, and then just applied it to a different disease. That was impressive. I do think we can probably, I think we kind of underestimated how global the world is, right? So even last year, January, I heard what was going on in China and I saw it take hold in Italy and I got on a plane. I was pregnant at the time to go to Germany and people were like, aren't you scared? I'm like, no. It's not in Germany. <laughs> it was kind of naive how it, you know, to not think it would move the way it did. And I think with all the data we have available, we can probably do a lot more, especially if we figure out how to do it across borders, you know, because that's certainly still a holdup, you know, something we a hurdle we haven't gotten over yet. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a couple of things that come up for me is one thing that you pointed on, which is like, this is technology that we've had for a really long time that we just apply differently and how many people feel like it's brand new technology and right. and they, they're skeptical of mm -hmm. the vaccine because they think it's new, but it's actually not. It's just a new application. Right. And again, you need that educational investment though, you know, because how many people know how pharma works? I certainly don't. <laughs> so there's a lot we can learn and it's interesting to see, like I deal with health systems a lot, but we've started dealing with, payers, health plans, insurers, 
pharma, life sciences companies. So that ecosystem of healthcare has just gotten a lot bigger. And most people, A, don't know that, or B, don't know how the different parts work together. You know, That's what I sometimes say about some of the um, larger tech companies coming into the healthcare field. It's like they... One of the reasons we just saw like the Amazon deal with Hathaway kind of fall apart because they didn't understand our ecosystem, right? I'm thinking as we look to interoperability, a problem we still haven't solved, but we've learned so much recently. What do you think the answer is? How do we move forward and become more interoperable? And how do we help other segments of our population understand how fast information and data can move and how we can all become more interoperable with our systems? It's a very good question. (laughs) And we certainly keep moving. And it's almost like there's a life cycle every, you know, 10 years or something, something new comes up. So in terms of the way we exchange data, it's already progressed a lot. So we used to have to, this is going to be really sound really technical, but we used to have to take a copy of the data and put it into place A and into place B and into place C. We've come a long way from that where, you know, we now have standards where you can on demand pull just the type of information that you need. You don't need these massive, you know, globs or records of data anymore. You just say, I want to know what allergies this patient has and you get it, boom, right then, you know. So I think that's pretty impressive. And uh, the health systems are certainly well underway on implementing that. It's up to vendors like us, I think, to help other verticals take advantage of that. So we, for example, have the experience, we have the technology, we have the footprint in healthcare, right, to work with people like the health plans or people in pharma and kind of help them get connected and get access to that data in a way that feels safe and secure to the patient and to the health systems, right? Because in the end, the data belongs to the patient, in my opinion. So we'll always have to keep that in mind. But there's a lot we can do with the experience we have. I was on a hike recently with some women in health IT, and we had an interesting conversation around data governance and the idea of data libraries, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't know how many people know that like, okay, this data exists and it is standardized in a way and you can literally like check it out just like you would a book in the library to apply it to something. Is that how you guys work? Do you work with data libraries or is it internal or is it like publicly available data that you use? Or That's actually a great question and I hadn't heard this analogy before. I kind of like that. I have to use that going forward. A data library, I like it. So it depends, right? I see a lot of vendors that have like secondary use of data or something. We've never gone down that route. So we've always said the data belongs to our customers, even the ones where we operate everything for them, including the infrastructure, that data is not ours. It belongs to our customers. So we, off the bat, have no rights to that data whatsoever. So we like to kind of be a trusted broker, right? So we have the relationship with a particular health organization or health provider, and we say, this is exactly how we want to use your data. We can de-identify it before it gets shared. And we're not keeping a record of it either, right? We're sending it over here on demand. And then that's it. It only gets used for that very specific purpose, you know, so that they know we're not holding on to it and then using it for something they weren't even aware of. Because you need that trust. I think there's been a lot of misuse of trust for decades, actually. So it's hard to earn that back. So, you know, you, you need these customers to trust you. So let's switch focuses a little bit. Let's talk yeah. about women in the uh, in the field. What do you think some of the opportunities going forward for women in data science and in the healthcare ecosystem? What are the things you're looking for that we as women can contribute going forward? First of all, I think we can contribute just as much as, you know, anybody else. <laughs> like there shouldn't be any difference. 
And I'm hoping that happens. And maybe my plug for, you know what, you don't have to be a developer locked in an office and never see people helps women realize there's a social aspect to this. You know, I think we can do a lot with just our experience. I always find that it's funny because when I was younger, I always said, I don't want to have kids. I want to have kids late because it's going to derail my career. And I had kids recently. I have two very, very small children. And it's actually helped me. You know, it's helped me with the experience from home, bringing that into work, just being a mother to care for someone, but also patience. I'm not a very patient person, but this has definitely taught me some of that. But just the angle too of how do we want to use data? How do we want someone to be taken care of? I think we bring a very good aspect in how we think about problems you know, to the industry that I think is hugely important. We looked at the statistics that women were having to be 30% more productive during the pandemic. So I'm wondering how was it for you shifting from being in the um, work environment, if that's how you worked, I don't know if you worked remotely yeah. or not, how was it shifting to then having to provide for your kids and be there with your kids and also maintain your position? Yeah, it was very difficult. So I have to say um, I was pregnant with my second child when the pandemic hit. So I had a three-year-old and I was pregnant and, you know, work sent us home sometime in March. So I was office-based and had to work from home, which that alone wasn't the issue, but then daycares closed. So my daughter was home and I do have to say it was very difficult because you always felt like you were doing half a good job at both. So my daughter certainly watched a lot of TV, you know, my role, I have one meeting after the other. So it's not like there's a lot of idle time. So what we actually did, my husband and I, we shifted our schedules. So I, because I have a lot of international colleagues, I started working at like 4 a.m. And then we overlapped for like an hour or two during lunch. And he worked late into the evening. But that way he, you know, could take care of my daughter in the morning and I could do it at night. It was certainly stressful. I was glad when daycare opened back up and it opened back up the week I had to return from maternity leave. So it was perfect. Holy cow. That's yeah. <laughs> Well, have you been able to maintain some balance? And if so, what is it that has been the key for you? You know, what is it that you tune into or? Like, I mean, it's a constant, you know, balancing act, as you say. It is possible, though, you know, so um, I don't feel bad about sending my kids to take care off the bat because I'm sure people always have the mom guilt. And you can't think that way, right? I feel like I'm a role model to my kids once they get a little bit older, you know, and I want them to learn especially my daughter, what she can do, you know, working as a woman in a field and maybe in a field that's male dominated. I think that's important. And they certainly get a lot of social interaction. But to balance it out, you know, I certainly have, I used to be a complete workaholic where I worked very late hours and weekends and, you know, nonstop. And I still certainly work overtime. But for example, between 5 and 8 p.m., that's time with my kids before they go to bed. I block that off. I think it's important to have, you know, to have that balance and have time where you're just focused on that part. And it makes you a more balanced person in general. And then I'm better at work. You know? So it does work. So then what do you do to get away from work? Like, what are your hobbies? And what are you into? Well, I'm a very competitive person in general, both at work and outside of work. But I like running. Running is, uh, you know, it's my one getaway where I definitely, I do that regularly. I used to play tennis, but with the pandemic, that kind of stopped too. So hopefully I get back into that. And then just, you know, reading. It used to be traveling the world, but that's also out right now. So, you know, we're focused on reading and running right now. Now, do you just run as an individual? Do you join groups? Have you done any marathons? Any sort of, are you competitive? I've done, 
I've that. done marathons. Unfortunately, they were pre-kids, you know, because then the kids just take up a lot of time. I am signed up for another half marathon, though, in the fall. So hopefully it's virtual. So it's a little bit more isolated these days. Wait, how does a virtual fun. marathon work? A half marathon? It's uh, Some races have gone back to in-person. I think this one, they didn't want to limit the field size and they had scheduled it like early. So they just said, we'll do this one virtual. But wait, so how does that work? Do you get a number or do you just like yeah. basically, and you start you get a number, tracker? you stick it on yourself, you run outside. If you see anyone that also is running, you like wave, you know, and then you just post, you use like Strava or something to record your time and post that afterwards. That's cool. Yeah, I've done a couple shorter races so far. But so that's my next big one now that my son turned one, I have a little bit more time to get back to half marathon distance at least. So we've been asking everyone from a mindfulness standpoint or a focus standpoint, is there one exercise or activity you do everything that keeps you focused, like meditation or anything else? Like one thing that you do every day that helps you stay focused? Every day. <laughs> I wish I could say every day. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I'm a little less disciplined, but I did recently, well, actually I'm still in it. I'm taking a leadership work, work course that's like external from the company, but they got me into journaling, which when I first said it sounds kind of, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> it sounded a little bit silly to me, but they said, just take 10, 15 minutes a day. And I have to admit, it's not every day, but I try to make it, you know, I try to block time to do it at least every other day just to kind of review how did your day go? How did you want to show up in these meetings? Did you accomplish goal? Were you at least aware? Because awareness is half the battle. And I try to do that now. So it's been a learning experience because I'm one of, you know, coming from sales, you're in such firefighter mode, very reactive. You know, the next thing that hits you jump on. So this has really taught me some disciplined mechanisms of kind of focusing me and focusing what I want to work on for myself. What's really cool over time is that if you keep those journals and review them, then you yeah. can start to see like how far you've come or looking at your thinking. Progress. Yeah, your progress of just like, wow, I've grown a lot since I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm a newbie to it, but I'm excited. <laughs> I've been journaling myself for years and um, I really do feel like it helps me stay focused and maintain some level of discipline in my work and that type of thing. So. It excites me that you, you do that too. It's funny because it was completely new to me. I'm like, how has nobody ever mentioned this to me? It's baffling. <laughs> I should have talked to you. you know? <laughs> but okay. I think, you know what? That brings up another good point. I wish there was even a tighter community of the women, you know, in this field, because I think there's these teensy tidbits that you don't even think are important, but they are, and they make a huge difference. So something as small as journaling, you know, would be a great tip for me it would have been a great tip years ago right well and there's even a lot of different types of journaling like there's people that have like their own methodology like I like bullet journals or I you know yeah. like the gratitude journals or like just like styles if you're you know free, right. free flowing and I really think that creating and adding to the culture of us just sharing what we know and supporting each other through our journeys and trying to make it easier for exactly. you know everyone all the women coming in behind us is essentially our duty so exactly yeah. I guess kind of wrapping up, is there any lessons that you've learned along your journey that you think it would be really important to share with others? Either it's challenges that you've overcome that you feel like women, other women could potentially hopscotch or just some sort of career nugget that you think would be helpful for somebody to know. 
It's a very good question. And I think I touched on some of this before, but A, be, don't be afraid right, to be human. I really believe in this. Just be the person you are because you're dealing with other humans. And healthcare makes it easier, again, just because you have so many personal experiences. I've had projects, for example, that have really spoken to me on a personal level and it made me that much more invested. You know, like I worked with a pharma company that looked into a multiple sclerosis patients and my dad has multiple sclerosis. So, and I didn't tell them this, but the whole meeting, you know, I was just focused on this is great, maybe not in my lifetime, but for, you know, patients after, after us, next generations, so this will make a huge difference. And you, you're just more credible if you're yourself and if you bring your personal experiences in, you know, and I find credibility is huge. You know, again, that, you know, that trust issue that exists, especially when you're in sales, <laughs> I think that, you know, everyone just thinks, well, they're, they're going to say anything to sell me on something. So if you can be a human being with, you know, bringing your personal stories in, I think that's a huge game changer. I love that. I love that you've brought in like really a focus on the patients as like a person, but then also taking on patients as in being patient. <laughs> right. You know, I deal with a lot of doctors and I'm not a clinician. So it's, there's definitely a you know, they have a different lingo and I don't pretend to be able to speak that, but I can speak patient. You know? Well, I love that. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. If somebody wanted to work with you or follow your work or find you online, what would be the best way for them to connect? Probably LinkedIn. So uh, happy to share that link. But if you search for Alex McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D, and Inner Systems, you'll, you'll find me and come up with my profile. That's probably easiest. Okay, perfect. We will include that in the show notes. Great. And uh, yeah, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. It's Thank you great. guys. You made it easy. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's our job. We're doing a good job. Yes. <laughs> thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.